Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything has a history, simply everything you can possibly think of, like candy, kittens and dross. Ooh, or bros. We should do we should do a history of bros, I think. Or we could do kits, mitts and bits, hits, twits and flits. We could flip between all of those bits. Uh, I think. However, <laughs> Yes, you know what I mean. You know what I yeah, mean. I've got nothing. I've got nothing clever to say about any of that, Sam. Um, but yet. yet, however, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam Willis? Who knew that the history of danger is in fact all about accidents in Tudor England, accident-prone children, the history of health and safety, and the Industrial Revolution. It's also all about stunt performers, Harold Lloyd and early cinema, as well as being about lion taming and the history of bear attacks. Or that the history of jam is in fact all about World War II, rationing and the Women's Institute, think jam and Jerusalem. And it's also about 17th century recipes, empire, sugar, slavery and colonial trade. Hmm. Well, fascinating stuff. You're probably wondering who is doing, who's telling you all of this information. Let me just say of my fellow presenter that if history was a bicycle that needed riding through the streets of the present day, dazzling our modern viewers with its bespoke spokes of the past, this man would be its rider, the man who would gently rest his perfumed bottom on the saddle of the past, cycling not too slow and not too fast over the tricky cobbles of the present, ensuring that everyone appreciated the mechanical beauty of the working of history's mechanics. He is none other than the cycling pilot of the past himself, Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is Professor James Daybell. Hello, Sam. Well, oh, I like that one. I know I like where you're going with that. That really is unexpected thinking. Uh, saddle soreness, I imagine. However, you may well be wondering, who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this exciting episode? Well, let's just say that if he were a bottom-related historian, he'd only be like E.P. Thompson author of Making of the History of the English Working Class, or Howard Zinn, author of People's History, two pioneers of history from the 
bottom upwards. So democratic is his approach to the past, his quest to uncover the lives and experiences of all men and women in the past, whatever their race, religion, creed and sexuality. So driven is he to avoid a top-down version of the past as kings, queens and assorted bigwits and nitwits. In the words of Meghan Trainer, he's all about that base. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the historical famous adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. We are doing the history of the bottom. Mm. Um, it's my idea. My fault. Sorry. It was. Uh, and I found it really tricky to do. Uh, oh, did you? No, I as soon as I <laughs> <laughs> well, I sort of started going. I sort of started off by thinking it was difficult, and then I just read some stuff, and and it sort of and it it, it popped up. And we've done we've done farts, we've done the toilet, so I avoided all that kind of thing. Uh, and I wanted to think about the bottom um, metaphorically, and I started thinking about uses of bottoms. So I started thinking about uh, I started thinking about beating and corporal punishment, uh, traitors to boys' buttocks, uh, and Thomas Nash, which is all about Renaissance education of boys and the idea of beating. I also wanted to think about mooning, so the the practice of <laughs> pulling brilliant. down your your pants and revealing your buttocks. I was also interested in the nomenclature of buttocks and and bottom, uh, which has led to an amazing variety of words: aft, stern, caboose, tail, apple, ass, ass, baddy, booty. Breach, bum, buns, bund, bunda, butt, cakes, can, culo, duffs, dumper, <laughs> fanny, gand, hams, haunches, moon, seat, <laughs> sit upon, tushy, tush. I mean, it just go, it just goes yeah, yeah. on Stop. and on and on. <laughs> Stop. I was then thinking about the sexual attractiveness of the bottom uh, throughout history and and mm. the way in which we can start thinking. <laughs> thinking about that and then I was also thinking about imperial attitudes uh, to the female sex uh, and have some examples there so I can go all over the place oh and of course it's all about uh, the reformation ah well it wouldn't surprise me I we used to talk quite a lot about um, the importance of thrones when we did our uh, live show on the history of the Tudors and so I was thinking about the importance of the bottom as being a place of repose of sitting rather than standing the cultural significance of that um you and you, everyone rising in court don't you for the judge um something to do with uh respect and I just thought there might have been two opposite things there that could be explored um also the, it's more broadly a, a chapter in the history of discomfort isn't it um uh, pews and churches being deliberately uncomfortable to keep you supposedly focused on religion rather than the pain in your bum. Um, I, I also suddenly thought, oh, what about um, uh, saddles, about uh, different techniques of horse riding, Roman cavalry? Was there going to be a link there? Some kind of saddle inventions, saddle saws, something like that. And um, it didn't take long to discover there was some really tremendous history around, around all of this and, and many, many other things. But just quickly for the saddles, James, um, the early history of penicillin, don't know if you knew this, but it was all about sore bottoms. So although Alexander Fleming is often credited with the final discovery of penicillin, it actually comes 
32 years after uh, a French physician called Ernest Duchesne notes that some moulds were able to kill bacteria. And he found this out because he watched some stable boys in the French army. This is in the very late 1900s. And they treat infected saddle sores on the sore bottoms of uh, the French cavalry, French soldiers. They treated those sores with mould that was growing on the saddles themselves. And he took, um, Duquesne, he took samples of this mould and was able to use it to successfully treat typhoid in guinea pigs. <laughs> Get your head around that. I like but that. The history idea. of penicillin, bottom line, is that uh, it is all to do with sore bottoms, or it certainly was oh. at the very beginning. I had uh, the most eccentric science teacher at school when I was in second year of secondary school, and she claimed that her great, 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 great uh, grandfather had, in fact, invented penicillin in the mountains up in Switzerland or somewhere, uh, had basically left cheese out to go mouldy and then fed it to the dogs when they were feeling sick. I, I'm not sure there's any sort of historical validity to this, but it was something that I really liked. There's, of course, debagging as well. I forgot about that. The idea of <laughs> uh, grabbing hold of somebody, pulling their trousers down, that, that sort of really nasty uh, practice. Have you ever been debagged, Willis? Uh, no. Sort of I naval, sort of naval thing, maritime thing, I imagine. Is it? I imagine so. Well, you'd know. I imagine so. Or is that the RAF or something? Anyway, I, I, such stories I've heard. <laughs> I don't know where you've got that from. Um, uh, anyway, James, do you want to take us somewhere in the past? Go I'll on. take you somewhere in the past. So I'm going to think about corporal punishment. And in fact, uh, caning and and in many... Many civilizations uh, beating people over the buttocks was a form of corporal punishment. And it was done there because basically the buttocks are, you know, are quite fatty and it offered some degree of protection from people being beaten. And this is a standard form of corporal punishment through, throughout the world. We can still see it in certain Southeast Asian countries today and places like Singapore. Um, when I was a child, uh, corporal punishment was allowed. And I remember not being beaten or caned on the buttocks, but I certainly remember having a ruler wrapped over the back of my legs, which was extremely painful. I get this. This is me aged seven. And what would you do, Sam, if your primary school teacher went into her cupboard, her book cupboard, leaving on her desk a whistle. Uh, if you were a young daybell, you would pick up that whistle and blow it. And I did that. And she then came out of her little cupboard. And so who did that? And being an honest boy, I put my hand up and then received a rap across the back of my legs, which I've never forgotten. My mother, as you can imagine, was furious because said teacher was in fact one of her best friends. Isn't that awful? However, I don't want to digress by talking about my own childhood. I want to talk about education in the 16th and 17th century. And I've talked about this in, in all sorts of ways before. You think about the standard education for a schoolboy, and this—I'm not going to talk about about female education here. Girls' education is, of course, incredibly interesting. I've written about that lots in the past, but there tends not to be corporal punishment uh, in that. So this tends to be something that is administered to boys. But if you think about the the standard 
education, it's either done at a at a petty school or a grammar school. It tended to be a a Latin uh, education, lots of um, lots of writing, reading. Um, we've talked in the past about how a horn book could be used. Um, a lot of um, a lot of religious education here as well, but also there was a healthy dose of corporal punishment in order to in order to discipline children. I mean, think of that sort of old adage, spare the rod and spoil the child. But there's a huge debate between public schools and private schoolmasters. In other words, public schools meaning not private in the way that we refer to them today, but schools that people could attend if they were if they had enough money effectively. So grammar schools in this instance. And these kinds of public schools were often seen to be quite violent places where children would be would be beaten versus private schoolmasters who were in the household could be controlled more were less vicious. And there's a there's a huge debate, particularly among among humanists. And we can think of the words of the Dutch humanist uh, Erasmus here, who talks about um, takes this this adage, uh, spare the rod and spoil the child and has his own reading of it. Our rod, he writes, should be kind words of guidance. Words of reproof are sometimes needed, but they should be filled with gentleness rather than any bitterness. These should be our instruments of discipline. Only in this way can our children be properly raised at home and attain moral wisdom. However, there are lots of examples in the 16th and 17th century of children who were quite clearly beaten. And a lot of this comes up in a lot of the educational literature. So actually this idea that you need to be able to beat your child in order to keep them learning and discipline them is really important. And this comes up in a, this is debated in a, tract called The Disobedient Child. And here we have a father and a son debating about whether uh, they should use corporal punishment or not. And I'll read you this one. The boy claims that schoolboys underwent all sorts of horrific uh, punishments being, and I quote, whipped and scourged and beat like a stone throughout the day and night. And he goes on to describe in a lot of detail the horrors committed against schoolboys, till death be almost seen in their countenance. And when his father refuses to believe that this went on, um, he's, the, the son relates a story of an honest man's son hereby buried, which through many stripes was dead and cold. He went into some sort of degree of gory detail here. Men say that of this man, his bloody master, who like a lion most commonly frowned, being hanged up by the heels together, was belly and buttocks grievously whipped, and last of all, which to speak I tremble, that his head to the wall he had often crushed. Now, there's also a brilliant tract called A Pleasant Comedy called Summer's Last Will and Testament, which was written by Thomas Nash in 1600. This is where they the quote, traitors to boys' buttocks, comes from. And one of the characters in here, Will Summer, describes his, his own education. Out upon it, who would be a scholar? Not I, I promise you. My mind always gave me this learning, 
was such a filthy thing which made me hate it so as I did when I should have been at school construing Bate, me, Philly, me, Philly, me, Bate. I was close under a hedge or under a barn wall playing at span counter or jack-in-a-box. My master beat me, my father beat me, my mother gave me bread and butter, yet all this would not make me a squitterbook. It was my destiny. I thank her as a most courteous goddess that she hath not cast me away upon gibberish. So very anti-education here. Oh, in what a mighty vein I am now against hornbooks. Here before all this company, I profess myself an open enemy to ink and paper. I'll make it good upon the accident's body that in speech is the devil's paternoster. Nouns and pronouns, I pronounce you as traitors to boys' buttocks. Syntaxis and prosodia, uh, sorry, syntaxis and prosodia, you are tormentors of wit and good for nothing, but to get a schoolmaster two pence a week, hang copies, fly out phrase book, let pens be turned to pick tooths, bowls, cards and dice. You are the true liberal sciences. I'll ne'er be goose quill, gentlemen, while I live. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Oh, he's very, very, very anti-education there. And certainly, I think, needs a good beating to get him to learn, Sam Willis. <laughs> very good. I, I, I love the idea of... Um... More, more generally, historical sources. So, so say you're interested in the history of the bottom, where would you go to it? So, so James has found a great source there. Uh, and then you can take that idea on and explore it in other ways. So I've come across um, a wonderful thing, and this is um, the caning records of schools. 
So um, this kind of punishment was actually banned in Great Britain in 1986. Um, but particularly one chap here, um, he a, a headmaster called Mike Wood, headmaster of Greenfield Primary in Oldham, Greater Manchester. If anyone's listening there, do get in touch. He discovered the um, caning records of his school. And they really do make some wonderful reading. And I, I, I came across this and then sort of dug down into it and found all sorts of other wonderful examples. So the 30th of January, 1978, James Blower, age 10. He has been responsible for a bit of bullying, vandalism and general thuggery. And he has given six blows on the rump with the flat of my hand. And it is signed G.B. Lewis. And uh, there's another one here, the 1st of October, 1979, Paul Furness. Paul, you were a naughty boy. Uh, bullying attack on a girl's neck. Interesting. Two smacks on the bottom with the flat of my hand. Again, that by Mr. G.B. Lewis. All sorts of other uh, fascinating examples of this. You've got one school in 1970, Shelton. Um, so this is not this is uh, canings rather than smackings. He's given three canings for kicking another student when on the ground. <laughs> I love that when on the ground. So it would have been okay for him to kick if he wasn't on the ground. It seems to be against the rules somehow. Um, Wright was given three canings for bullying a first former. So that seems to have been completely unfair. Three students were each given three canings each for smoking in public on Bunbury Road. Or oh, got caught, caught having a fag in 1970. Um, many others also given three, four or five canings for smoking, for stealing and truancy. Um, young Wheeler given four for flagrant disobedience, not just normal disobedience, flagrant disobedience. Uh, Kelly, he was given three for foul language in class. Um, and going back in time, we've got a primary school in the 1950s. David Bostwick. David, please get in touch. You were given two strokes for misbehaving while the head teacher was out of the room. More specifically, he hit another child in the eye with his book. <laughs> and the same child, again, David Bostwick, later caned twice for generic disobedience and then um, for throwing uh, for throwing coke in the playground. And then a final time for banging a boy's head against the wall for no reason at all. And I think my favourite one, here we are, M. Livings. M. Livings, you are an absolute rogue. 1954, he was given four strokes on the behind for throwing darts at another boy. It's very dangerous, Sam. It's not a laughing matter. <laughs> it is very dangerous. It's not a laughing matter. Um, and so what we've got here is not only a historical source, which uh, is telling you all about the specific moments in time where these people were beaten, but it also tells you a great deal about childhood behaviour going back in time. Love it. Love it. Sam, That was. where did you find that resource, that wonderful resource? Oh, well, my, just uh, online. <laughs> <laughs> Everything, everything's online nowadays, but um, the, the originals have all survived and they can be found. And um, I'd actually urge a lot of schools to, you know, you will have records. Go, go up into your head teacher. If you're a teacher, go up and, and try and find the, the, um, the examples of these things. They will all be out there to be discovered. Hmm, excellent. Well, I wanted to talk about mooning. So basically, this is the exposure of one's buttocks. Uh, in, I suppose, not in bedrooms, but actually in public, in order to embarrass, to humiliate, or to insult people. And I want, by the end of this, to get to the Reformation, the history of the the Reformation. So this is a this is a sort of it's a a cultural phenomenon across the globe. 
Uh, one can think about the Maori tradition of mooning, uh, known as waka pahone. I think that's how I've pronounced it, waka pahone. Yes, waka pahone. Yes, which is a, a real distinct form of insult. And there are various sort of examples of this throughout history. Uh, one can think of the um, the Pixar movie Brave, uh, which is where my cultural reference for mooning comes from. Uh, my daughters who watched this when they were very young were very uh, amused by this when one of the characters lifts up his skirt and shouts out, feast your eyes. I also remember the Braveheart movie is another one where the um, where one of the uh, one of the Scottish troops uh, pulls up his kilt uh, and shows his posterior to the advancing army. I think he then gets a uh, an arrow into it. So there are all sorts of examples throughout history that we can think of. We can think about it during the War of the Roses being used. But I want to tell you in particular about it in relation to the Reformation. And I want to tell you about the Papal Belvedere by Lucas Cranach the Elder, which was published in 1545 in Martin Luther's depiction of the papacy. And this is a woodcut that shows the Pope with two German peasants who are farting in his face when he has issued a papal bull. So this is Pope Paul III. And the caption reads... The Pope speaks, our sentences are to be feared, even if unjust, and the response is, be damned, behold, O furious race, our bared buttocks, here, Pope, is my Belvedere. And so what we have here is a very popular form of response to the papal bull, and this is part and parcel of Luther's and in particular, the German peasants' response to the Catholic religion and this sort of uprising of Protestant fervour that we see that then takes off throughout Europe. So there we are, Sam, mooning all the way through to the Reformation. Very good. Very impressive. You, you, got, you got to the Reformation. I was wondering how we were going to get yes. our way there, but we absolutely did. Um, I was thinking about the sort of material culture objects relating to bottoms, and there's a real tremendous uh, collection of things out there. I'm actually going to send you a picture, James. Here we are. Um, have a look at this. Is it decent? It's absolutely decent. It's one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Goodness me, it's arrived. Let's have a look. Ah, it's a statue. It's a sculpture. Yeah, yeah it's... Uh, what else could you say about it? Well, it's it's turned up rather large in my... So I can't actually see it in its entirety. I can see a portion of it. Ah, yes, it looks like a person's bottom. It's 18 millimetres tall. It's 18 <laughs> millimetres tall, but it's not. Is it, a, is it something like a rowlock or something like that? Or something for... It is... Something for ropes to wind around. No, it's a jet pendant, oh. um, and it's tiny. It's eighteen millimeters high. It's it's it. It looks to me like an abstract piece of art, doesn't it? It does. Yes. Um, it's a very sort of distinctive shape, um, and so what we're looking at here is uh, the. Well, it's really hard to explain, but it's an abstract image uh, which looks like it's got an extremely large, perhaps stomach or perhaps bottom. It's known as the Venus of Monroe's. And um, get this, it's 11,000 years old. 
Oh my gosh. It does look like somebody who is sticking their bottom out, basically. It does, yeah. Um, and it also looks like a kind of um, amazing piece of figurative art from the, the sort of the early 1920s in somewhere like Denmark. It's a, it's a magnificent, magnificent thing. It's one, one of my favouritest um, prehistoric artefacts. It's called the Venus of Monruz. That's M-O-N-R-U-Z. Everyone do please... Um, take the effort to have a look at this and um, it allows me to talk about these they're called venuses um, and it's not the only one by any stretch of the imagination they're paleolithic and they're little figurines and they are all distinguished by the fact that they have very large bottoms also that's one aspect of it more specifically they they tend to have very small heads in in this case the monroes one doesn't have a head at all and they have very wide hips their legs tend to taper up to a point uh, they're often missing arms and legs, and the head, if there is one, is usually small and faceless. With this uh, Venus of Monroe's, you 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 have it at its most abstract, but there are many which are very obviously um, images or figures of people. There's been a great deal of discussion about what they are and how how they were used, um, which I think is it's ongoing and it's absolutely fascinating. Um, but broadly speaking, they're considered to be a representation of fertility, um, some kind of ritual, some kind of symbolic function. Um, one of the things that has certainly changed over time um, is the, the way that people have written about these magnificent little items. So primarily the, the earliest archaeologists who were finding them and writing about them were all men. And more recently, you've got um, a lot of women who are also writing about them and the, the different ways in which these objects are are discussed is extraordinary. So there's a there's a there's a fascinating gendered history of the interpretation of these objects. Um, which is as interesting, I think, as the question of what they originally might have been used for or, or why they were made in the different ways that they were. One of the, the most um, interesting explanations I've come across is that they were self-portraits. Um, and it comes from the idea that the, the, the proportions of the statues might reflect the way that women's bodies would seem if they were looking down at themselves. Um, and so in some respects, these might be um, be interpreted as self-portraits. Uh, others have argued that the complete lack of facial features is clearly an important part of it. And this may have been due to the fact that there were no mirrors in the Paleolithic, which I'm not entirely convinced about. And some historians have pointed out that there would have been water pools and puddles. There were reflections around if people wanted to find reflections. Um, but a fascinating uh, uh, a collection. There's another called the Venus of Willendorf. Um, this is only 11 centimetres tall, a beautiful um, a particularly uh, beautiful one. This was made around 25,000 years ago, discovered in 1908. Um, and as with all of these famous figurines or, or famous artefacts from the past uh, that old, I'm always uh, fascinated by the, the moment that they were actually uncovered and found. So uh, we know that Johann Veran, who was... Um, he was the man who actually actually discovered this and then didn't put it in his pocket somehow um made sure that it was it ended up in the natural history museum in vienna in austria this is an example it's made out of limestone uh, and it's particularly uh, particularly fascinating now all of these and the, the way that they've been interpreted as i said has its own history and i think one of the most interesting and exciting things about it is um is a poem 
here. This is from Yusuf Komunyaka. He's an African-American poet born in 1947. And he wrote a poem about the Venus of Willendorf in 1998, noticing particularly that many of the features of the figure involved what Europeans tended to use to disapprove of in terms of, of, of Africans, uh, particularly um, focusing on the braiding of hair. She's big as a man's fist, big as a black pepper shaker, filled with a gris-gris dust, like two fat gladiolus bulbs grown into a burst of twilight. Lumpy and fertile, earthy and egg-shaped, she's pregnant, with all the bloomy hosannas of love hunger, beautiful in a way that forces us to look at the ground. This squat Venus in her braided helmet is carved from a hunk of limestone, shaped into a blue singer. In her big smallness, she makes us kneel. Uh, absolutely magnificent poem there. And I think that really captures the, the, the mystery of them all, um, particularly through the eyes of this uh, African-American poet. So if you guys are near a computer, please do look up these two examples I've been talking about. The first, it was the Venus of Monroe's, uh, the, the wonderful abstract Venus. And the second one, um, uh, which that poem was focused on, the Venus of Willendorf. That's W-I-L-L-E-N-D-O-R-F. Brilliant, Sam. Guys, I hope you've all enjoyed that, our little history on the bottom. Uh, it was a challenging one, but very enjoyable to research and to talk about. Uh, do please follow me on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, please check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And I'm at James Daybell on Twitter. And the podcast is at Unexpected Pod. We are also all over social media. We are on Instagram. We are on Facebook. So come and check us out there. We have a website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. Visit us there and find out everything that we've been up to and all our back catalogue of shows. There are also signed books uh, that you can get hold of. And we also have a Patreon page if you'd like to support what we're doing for the future of history. <laughs> That's absolutely right. Try to change the way people think about the past. That's it for now, guys. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.